Would you join me in Acts chapter 2 this morning? We're going to try to finish up chapter 2, the last, I think it is, six verses, Lord willing. As you're turning there, I will mention um, coveting is a sin, and we're not supposed to envy. But uh, I am envious a little bit this morning, but it's a good kind. I think there is a, a good kind of envy. I remember standing there. Uh, a while ago, and I, I, it dawned on me, okay, this is not a bad envy. Uh, do y'all remember who David envied? There was a little creature that David envied. It was the little bird that was able to be at the temple all the time. Like It was almost like, yeah, it's great to run the kingdom, but this little bird gets to constantly be around the temple and, and just where God's presence is. And so he, he envied that bird. Uh, well, this morning, I envy you. You get to sing full-throated, hopefully, and full-hearted. And so this morning, I was in my heart singing with you, um, but I was protecting my voice, uh, have, getting over a little head cold. It happens about three or four times of the year. I know many of you get the same type thing. Um, and so I hope this morning you don't get to hear my obnoxious coughing and snorting. <clears throat> if that happens, you know why, okay? Um, uh, Deanna does say I kind of have an obnoxious snort that I do sometimes, and so I don't know how else to do it, right? And I'm not going to be able to hit that, that mute button when it's time, but uh, uh, so I was standing in the back. It's probably not a great look for the pastor to be on the front row not singing, like, what's wrong with him? Is his heart cold? No, it's saving the voice, so all that. All right, Acts chapter number two, let's jump in. Um, and that, let me encourage you, Brandon was up here a few minutes ago mentioning about baptism, so we had three folks within the service last week that identified by their raised hand that they need and want, desire to be baptized based off of the text we were in last week. Um, the service was over, uh, and we had another one uh, immediately after the service, another Wednesday night, so that took us up to five. Brandon reminded of one of our young girls in the children's. A department that would not have been in here. So we're up to six right now. If you need to be part of that, um, do do that tear off and drop it in one of those boxes. And we'll be in, in communication with you to set a date. Hopefully, maybe by next Sunday we have the date. Not too far in the distant future. But we'll probably run that announcement at least two weeks. And then we'll go from there. All right. Acts chapter 2. Here's the scene. The Holy Spirit has fallen on 120 people in the upper room. Uh, in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, Jesus is resurrected and ascended. The Holy Spirit came just as he promised. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, came out and started preaching a message to the Jews. We know there were over 3,000 present because 3,000 got saved. And he told them and taught them line by line using the Old Testament prophecies to prove and what they knew about Jesus that they had crucified their Messiah, the Christ, they had crucifi crucified a man. They headed it up. They caused it that they knew was attested by God by miracles, wonders, and signs. And you knew this about him, and yet you still called for him to be crucified. And he showed them by the end of his message that they had not only crucified the Christ, the Messiah, they had crucified the very Lord and Son of God because it was God himself who had come. It wasn't just a great man, the Messiah. He was also the Lord himself. And they fell under great conviction in last week's text. So much so that they began to cry out, what shall we do? Brothers, what do we do? And, and the idea, is there any hope? We've committed great sin. We're in big trouble with God. Is there any hope? Do you remember what he said? Peter says, repent. So just within your own heart and your own mind, if you were here last week, review quickly 
What is repentance and what is repentance not? Repentance is a deep, thorough change of heart and mind about our sin, about ourselves. We're not good enough to go to heaven. We can never be good enough. Our sin is way worse than we ever thought it was. And we have a deep, thorough change of heart and mind about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And when that is real, it will result in a changed life. The changed life is not repentance. It's the result. Of, it is always there. If there is no changed life, then somebody just had an emotional event. They weren't really repenting of their sin and their self and their Savior. They were just, again, feeling bad maybe about their sin, but not repenting of it. It's a big difference. This is a deep, thorough change of mind that will result when you put your faith and trust in Christ the, the changed life follows, not just because of a changed mind, but we know because God himself puts his Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit begins the change. He is the force behind the change. But Peter also called when, here, here's what he did. And again, not word for word, but here's the idea of the grammar. Peter says, all of you need to repent. All of you need to repent. And then he changes his his tense of, of the calling of action by saying, in essence, and he and she and those of you who repent, they need to get baptized. They need to go forward. If your repentance is thorough and deep, then you will do the risky thing, especially in their day, and you will go forward and make your alignment with Christ public by being baptized in the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3,000 signed up for that, and they were baptized. And that takes us now to verse number 42. Would you look at today's text? So what happened now? I've titled, uh, rarely do I point out the title of a message, but this one is called The Model Church. What we're about to read, I believe, is what we should always be aiming for. You say, what would you, should we try to be about as a church here at Graceview? We want to aim at this target. This is the target in this text. Everything exactly as, as they do it in this text. I'm not going to say that, especially in the middle verses. Pay attention how we teach that a little bit later, Lord willing. Look at verse 42. And they, after being baptized, these 3,000 joined the 120. They're now filled with the Holy Spirit, and they devoted themselves. As we're reading this, I want you all to compare your own life. You say, I'm a Christian, Jeff. Notice again, they devoted. The idea of they committed they kept devoting themselves to, and he's going to name four things in verse 42. We're going to spend probably about half of the message in verse 42 in the first point today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they devoted themselves to these four things. Verse 5, 43, and awe came upon every soul, awe, fear, reverential fear, awe came upon every soul. Why? Because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And we're just given a large term. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had never seen anything like this. If you're paying attention right there, you may say, "What? wait, Jeff. You just said Jerusalem's never seen anything like this. Most of Jesus' miracles were in Galilee. They've never seen anything like what's happening now. This is new. It's powerful. Jerusalem is awestruck with what's been going on. It's many of them now. 
Verse 44. And all who believed. What's the early church? What were they doing? And all who believed were together. Together. And had all things in common. They were together. They had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That sounds strange. That sounds pretty drastic. That's radical. Verse 46, and day by day, not on a certain day, just the idea here, every day, and day by day, attending the temple together. So the early church did not stop going to the temple. Jeff, do you think they went down there and offered sacrifices? I don't. I think they realize it. I don't know how long it took them to figure it out, but we don't need to offer those sacrifices anymore. Jesus has made the one ultimate sacrifices, sacrifice that all those other sacrifices were pointing to. So then why are they going to the temple? This is where they would go for their large group meetings. Verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together. Second time the word together. And, so there's that, and breaking bread in, I want you to remember this word for later, their homes. Their homes. Do you see two, two places they're meeting? Large group meetings in the temple. Smaller group meetings in their homes. In their homes. And there they would be breaking. So in essence, verse 46 is telling us where and how often verse 42 is happening. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Glad hearts, generous hearts. Some are glad to have food to eat. Some are glad to have their own food and to be able to give food to other people. And they received their food with glad hearts and generous hearts, praising God. What are they doing? What are the early church doing? Praising God and having favor with all the people. The people in Jerusalem are taking note of them. And there's an admiration for them because of these things. It's like, wow, that, this is unusual. We've never seen anything like this, what's happening among these people. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number. Only the Lord can do this. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I told you we'll spend most of our time in verse 42. Would you notice with me this morning the devotion of the early church? What was the early church really devoted to? And I encourage you again. Uh, there's more here than we're going to have time, and I'm not going to do a deep dive into these four things. It would be four points. It's its, its own message if we wanted to just make verse 42 a four-point message, but we'll hit it within the thought of the devotion of the early church. So the early church is filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit leads them to start devoting and committing themselves to these four things. In my Bible, in fact, I did this just a few minutes ago, a few words to me kind of set the tone for these six verses. It's, the, it's this idea of fellowship together in verse 44 in common and together in verse 46. So all the four things that they're doing, here's the key, it's all corporate all of it is corporate. They're studying and learning the teaching of the apostles together. They're fellowshipping together. They're breaking bread and eating meals together. And these prayers are not just private prayers. They are prayers together. So I'm inviting you even now, before I say anything else about those things, where do you stand 
in relation of the model church. Are we becoming a model church? Are you as an individual helping us to move toward being like the model church? Notice the first thought. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. Watch. The Jews already devoted themselves to the study of their Bible, the Bible of their day, which was the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. The Jews already study the Old Testament. So what's new about this? This was a new dynamic. This was new content. If we were to put ourselves back in this time and realize they only have the Old Testament and they study it every week and they're memorizing and reinforcing it through the week and they're they're very zealous for the study of the Word of God, but this is a new dynamic. Think of it this way, for Jews to study the Old Testament, their Bible of the day, once they got past Genesis chapter 11, what are they now studying? Once they got past chapter 11 of Genesis, the rest of it, in essence, is them studying their own history. They're studying their history of God leading them as his chosen people and of God's promises that had been fulfilled and those that were to come. That is very different than any other nation. See, when we study the Old Testament, we're studying their history. You go to school, you study U.S. history or South Carolina history. For them to study the Bible was to study their own history. But now comes along something that was new. And the Lord wanted them to see at this new time period that what they had studied was great and it was accurate, but his plan all along was far greater. It was much larger, much more glorious than they had ever conceived of. The new teaching was so vital that unlike the Old Testament where God spoke to the prophets to write or to preach to the patriarchs, and they would write it down. That became, so God to the prophets, and this becomes the Old Testament. This new message is so important, so vital. God himself becomes a man to initiate this teaching himself and then to train those that are going to become his all-time most authoritative teachers. God, rather than saying to you, to them, he comes down, he starts the message trains these guys, and then he leaves himself. So write this thought down. Though they had the apostles, and wherever the apostles were teaching and preaching, I mean, the idea here in verse 42, all the apostles, whether it be over there, Thomas is preaching today. Bartholomew's preaching over here. Over here we have Matthew, and there's Matthias, and, and there's Andrew, and there's James the Less, and all of us. We're not just thinking it's just Peter. Yes, Peter and James and John, all of them are preaching, and they're locked in because they've been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the early churches just want to soak up the teaching of the apostles, not to the exclusion of the Old Testament, but to explain and help them make more sense and to put it in context and to expand on what is God's plan for us as the church So they had the apostles. How great would that have been? You're like, man, that'd been awesome to just go around to have the apostles preaching and teaching, just soaking it in, the things that the Lord had taught them. That would be great. We don't have the apostles. But we do have their teaching. We still to this day have the teaching of the apostles. And so the thought I want you to write is very simple. Healthy churches place a high premium on Bible teaching. This was a healthy, this was the model church All healthy churches place a high premium, a high premium on Bible teaching. I dare say, 
I don't know what we do here at Grace View that has a higher premium than our Bible teaching. And it's not just this point right here. It's in our life groups. It's in our, it's in our men's ministry. It's in our women's ministry. It's in the youth ministry, the children's ministry. This is like the, one of the things we put the highest priority on, and there's a reason. Healthy churches. There are many, many churches that do not place a high premium on Bible teaching. They may have, have a premium of teaching, but not Bible teaching. Healthy churches put a premium upon that. Now, some may say, Jeff, I think healthy churches should be all about following the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what healthy churches should be about. Absolutely. We're not saying do this at the exclusion of that. Healthy churches follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but they also know the Holy Spirit is the one who authored the Word of God. And so if we want to know that we're rightly following and we can trust what we think we are being led to do in in areas that are not covered in the Scripture, then we better know the Bible and its truths to be able to recognize what the Holy Spirit is saying. He will never, the Holy Spirit will never lead us against this. In fact, we could say, The Word of God is the primary way that the Holy Spirit guides us as a church and as individuals. So we place a premium on the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. And I'll explain that further in a moment. Look at verse 43. Notice one thought quickly. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done. Signs. What does that mean? Signs are what? What are signs? We have them on the road. They are indicators. They give information. They point to something. Signs often point to something. Notice verse 43, the whole of it. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Again, I want you to write this thought. The early, thir- the early church is so devoted. Why are they devoted to the teaching of these 12 guys? They were so devoted to the teaching of the apostles Because Jesus had specially called these 12 men. Christ came. He chose these 12, not the others. He chose these. He called them. Christ specially trained them. And the early church knows these are the ones that Christ has called and chosen and trained. But then after Christ is resurrected, it doesn't stop there because God the Father now validates, confirms, attests that these are his most authoritative messengers in the same way as he had in verse 22 with the life of Christ. God the Father attested Christ through miracles, wonders, and signs. God the Father attests the apostles through their miracles, wonders, and signs to show these are my authoritative messengers through the working of their miracles. In fact, I am very confident that without being arrogant... The apostles fully recognized that because of their training and their special calling, that what they were teaching was authoritative above anyone else. What they were teaching, what they were showing about the Old Testament, how they were interpreting that, what they were showing that had never been revealed before, this was authoritative to the point That they could say, hey, when we are teaching you what we've been taught by Christ, and when we write what the Holy Spirit inspires us to write, these are commands for you. And these men knew that. After you've written that, hold your spot here. Go with me, if you would, over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter number 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Very quickly, notice verses 1 and 2. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3, 
Verse 1, Peter, the apostle, the one who had preached on the day of Pentecost, says, this is now the second letter. That's why we call it Second Peter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, both the first letter and the second, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you. In both the first and the second, I'm reminding you. That's the nature of these two letters. Reminding them of what? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Notice, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as, a, as authoritative as any messenger of, of God's ever been, he writes, I want you to be remembering the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. We're not abandoning them. His message on the day of Pentecost was just covered with Scripture. Here it is again. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. The commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So without bragging or boasting, he's just saying, this is the way it is. And not me. This is not me saying. When I'm preaching what Peter has written, it is authoritative and commands for us. When I'm saying what I think, that is not authoritative and that is not a command for you to live your life by. What Peter is saying, when I preach and teach and I'm inspired by the Lord and I'm sharing what he taught to me, these are commands from the Lord himself. So the early church locked in on the apostles' doctrine. Back to Acts chapter 2. Notice again verse number 42, the second thing. I told you I underlined some words a while ago. I want you to feel the weight of them again. Verse 42, fellowship. Fellowship. 44, together. Fellowship, together. Verse 44 at the end, in common. Verse 46, they went to the temple together. Together, together, in common. Fellowship. What are these teaches? The early church devoted itself to the fellowship. So that tells me several things. Guys, church is a whole lot more than a building. And you all know that. But unfortunately, there are people in our county, they think of church, a church as a building. But there may be some this morning. In fact, there are in the room. You're in the room right now. And your idea is not of a building, but it is of a time slot. Church is a time slot. In some churches in the county this morning, they're going to have a one-hour service. Others will have an hour-and-a-half service. Some may have two-hour services. Whatever that time slot, that's some people's thought. Church is about a formal service that starts at this stated time and finishes around this time. And it's mainly about what I get out of the service. That's not church. That's not the New Testament concept of church or the model church. What I want to say is it's so much more than stated times and formal services, and it's so much more than what you get out of a service. It's about us fellowshipping, uniting together to serve the Lord, primarily by serving each other. It's us living our lives together, not in a little time slot, check it off the list as, as if we've accomplished church for the week. It was about the fellowship in common, together, together. And then you see the phrases, day by day. This is how they live. This is the whole tone of the early church, living life together. I want you to think of the analogies. Think of them quickly. What analogies does the New Testament use for the church, for all the saved people through all the ages? Put us all together. What analogies? It is a what? A body. Exactly. 
What's another one? A what? A family, a bride, which is not going to be on your list. A building, yes, a building with like stones, living stones. That's not going to be on your list, but that is true, Brother Victor. And then the other was, we are sheep. You remember that? We're sheep. And so we're all like individual sheep that makes us together a what? Or a flock. Now think for a moment. That's real simple. You just heard these analogies. If we are a body, then Christ is the head. All right. If we're a flock, Christ is the shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, even called the chief shepherd, right? If we are a family, we are actually, to be specific, all of us, no matter of our age, to each other, we are what? Brothers and sisters. So Christ is our? He's our brother. And God is our? Father. So Christ is our older brother because he's the one and only child, son of God by nature. We are the adopted children of God, but we have that in common with him that God is our father. God is his father. God is our father. God is not the father of the unsaved people. He's ours. We have all these analogies. Together we are the bride. He is the groom. That was mentioned. If I were to cut my, had I cut my finger off this morning, that, that pinky, that one right there, and I just left it at home. The rest of me is going to be hurting, but I'm going to make it. But that, that finger is not meant to live life separate from the body. Satan loves when sheep wander off by themselves. They become easy prey to attack. We are meant to live together, together, in fellowship, in common, in the family. You're not meant to be estranged from the family. You're meant to be part of the family. Write this thought down. The New New Testament pictures us in these various analogies. And in none of these ways is the Christian life pictured as something that is solitary or something that's a private journey. None of these is a private journey. Sheep are to stay with the flock. The body is to all be intact, serving each each other part, never being separated from the rest of the body. And I alluded to this last week. It's something that is very, very concerning. And I'm going to say some just real simple things. You've heard me say them before. But I want you, A, to get it for yourself. And B, I hope you will get it well enough. Because, listen, all of you this morning, this week, most of you are going to be very close to other people who are in our county who are readily will tell you, oh, I'm a Christian. And the crazy thing is... They actually know how to state that they are a Christian. And their, their verbiage sounds like that theology of a Christian. And they very well may be a Christian. But the unfortunate thing is, our county is full of people who identify and say that they're Christians. And very well may be, but they have no connection with a body of believers on a regular basis. They just don't have one. I don't think in the history of the church there's ever been a time like there is right now where more and more people are beginning to identify themselves that way. I'm a Christian. In fact, some even go this other level and think they're not, that they're, they're, like they're really, really good in what they're doing. They're going back to the pure way. Like as if 
organized churches that meet in buildings is wrong and sinful because Jeff, here's the model church this morning. They didn't have buildings. They met in houses or they went to the temple. Well, just study it out a little bit and what you'll find. Yes, the early church did not have houses. They didn't have church buildings until in the 300s. And there's a reason for that. They, it wasn't safe. It, it wasn't accepted in the Roman Empire and in, in the Jewish community. They were constantly being beat down. But it's like as soon as time allowed, and it's kind of unique to me, they, they date these the best they can, the, the, the dating records and the methods that they use to show how old rocks are and formations are, seems to be somewhere around the 300s. It seems to me that's around the time that some guy named Constantine came along and, and made Christianity legal. And so what happened? The early church wanted to have a place where they could, like, when they're scattered away from the temple and nowhere's big enough for us all to meet, what if we have a, ch a house church there and a house church there and a house church there, but we all want to meet together sometimes? It's almost this idea, what if we do that through the week, but we also have this other desire to get together in a bigger place where well, then we'd have to have a building. And as soon as that happened, what do you find? Church buildings start popping up. Not that it was the wrong thing. It was always in the heart of the church to do that. I think today some folks... They get real dissatisfied with local churches, and I get that. People get burned by local churches. Sometimes local churches add a whole lot of man-made stuff that's just not in the Bible, and it gets really, really frustrating, and we don't want to be that kind of church. Can I say this, though? Dissatisfaction and frustration with local churches is not an excuse to abandon being united with believers because of imperfect churches? How many of the New Testament churches were imperfect? They were all imperfect. They were all imperfect. So here's the simple thoughts. I want you to just, again, they're simple. You say, Jeff, this is redundant. Please tell me you got more. I'm just, I'm just going to plain. I hope you'll know it well enough yourself, but know it well enough to where you could present this to your friend or your coworker who believes, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm living a normal life. Many people say they're a Christian, but they have no connection with a group of other fellow believers. So here's the simple thoughts. The idea of a Christian living isolated from other believers is completely foreign in the New Testament. It is completely foreign. It does not exist. I challenge, if you're here this morning, thing, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I would ask you, name me one healthy Christian that's presented as a healthy example in the New Testament. Give me their name that they were not in some way attached to another body of believers and were serving with them and being edified by them. Name one in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. This movement is becoming so popular to just isolate me and my family. I go out and do my job, and then I come, and like I have this private little Christian life it doesn't exist in the New Testament. What we find is in Hebrews chapter 10, there is a command. It's stated negatively, but I think by stating it negatively, it's actually stronger. Do not neglect to meet together. Do not neglect to meet the, together as is the habit of some. So what does that tell you? Even, so we're dealing with like 30 to 33 A.D., so somewhere by the mid to late 60s A.D., the writer of Hebrews has already noticed a pattern that some think it's okay to not be attached and to just 
forsake the meeting together. But the inspired word of God gives us a, com a command. Do not neglect to meet together. It doesn't just say meet together. Because if that's all it said, then we could kind of pick how often. But by saying do not neglect to meet together means, well, they were meeting over here. Well, where were you? Oh, now they met every day at first. They're going to settle into definitely meeting on Sundays by the end of the book of Acts. You'll see that as the church spreads around the Roman Empire. Other clear thought, <clears throat> simple thought, is that verse 42, this fellowship does not describe a loose attachment. This is not a loose attachment. Can I give you three examples of a loose attachment? And will you make up your mind right now in your heart that if I'm not wrong, that you won't get mad at me? Like before I say them, you make up your mind. Okay, if you're not wrong, I won't get mad. If you're wrong, then I might get mad at you. Okay, if I'm wrong, you can get mad at me. What's being described here is not a loose attachment that would look like this sporadic, occasional attendance. You come here one week, go on the next. Here the next, go on the next. That's not what's described. Here one, out two, come back week four, gone week five and six. Nope. Here two, gone on the third. Come three weeks in a row, skip two. That's, that's not what's being described. This is not what's being described. This idea of fellowship in common, together, together, is not because we live in an age where we have formal stated times. We're going to start, we time it where we slide in right at the end. Right before the service begins. Because in our mind we think church is a formal service. And I was there to watch them sing. And I was there to watch them preach. And then right as the last amen. Get out quickly as you can. And check off church. Nope, that's, that's not it. This is no loose attachment that's being described. Nor is it watching a service online. That's not it. We talk about a loose attachment. It's what? Now, I praise the Lord. And this is where I'm, I'm probably making a lot of people upset. That's all right. I'm going to say it. I love modern technology. Could you imagine 100 years ago where we didn't have television and people just got homebound and shut in and they just got cut off and they had to wait when the preacher had good time to maybe come by and encourage them or hopefully have a family member that knows the Bible. Obnoxious cough getting ready to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. See, told you. It's not about just watching a service loosely from a distance. There's no fellowship there. There's no connection. It isn't even about just being collected. It is about being connected. Praise the Lord. When we're sick, you can watch someone on TV. In a lot of churches, even like us this morning, we're able to, like, I can view my own. We have people who right now this morning are at home sick, and they're very grateful because they're able to stay with us and kind of stay connected, and they'll be back just as soon as they can. There is a movement among pastoral leaders and Christian leaders, and they're kind of giddy and excited about the opportunities that are coming for cyber churches more and more and how much it's going to grow, and this is where it's all heading. I'm going to tell you, that doesn't excite me one ounce. Cyber church is not God's will for able-bodied people. He wants us to be gathered regularly, fellowshipping, together, connected, having things in common. That doesn't excite me. 
I want to have it available for when we're sick and when we're homebound. I don't want to have a ministry to a screen. Because you don't have a ministry to me when you're watching me on a screen. I don't have a ministry to you when you're just watching. We are to be together. I quickly got to hit this third thought. And the breaking of bread. The early Christians were so together and fellowshipping that they started eating in each other's houses. Like literal meals. I take this mostly at surface value and I definitely agree with how many apply this. So they loved each other so much they just wanted to, hey, come over. Hey, y'all come over. And they had houses. This, some had houses big enough for that. Come on over. And obviously some didn't have houses. And so they're spending time fellowshipping. And that's, this was an expression of their fellowship. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're a Christian, what is your approach to your home? What's your approach to your house? How do you think of it? Have you ever met that person that their approach, they don't say it, they wouldn't even know to say it, but it's, it's almost as if their house and their mind is like a museum? It is so spick and span. Their own children, not, e- not even the grandkids can go in a few of the rooms. And the grandkids, there's no rules for them, right? But don't, with that, don't go with, no, no. Like, that's, is this like a showroom? Or do you, do you like live in your house? No, we don't live in that over there. We live in these two little spaces. That's always, have you ever met someone, and by the way, this is some of us, our attitude toward our house is it's our castle. It's our castle. It's our escape. We scurry out into the world and we do our jobs and we drive home at night and we hit the button and the drawbridge comes up and we feed the crocodiles and we close the doors and pull the curtains and we triple lock the door so nobody comes in. That is so not the early church. That is not how the early church. The early church viewed their houses as places of safety, places of rest, places of fellowship. But really, you know what their their attitude was? These are tools. These are blessings. God has blessed us with this. It's a tool to be used for the Lord's work. How do you identify and use your house? It's a tool. Open your homes to each other. Have each other over. You're like, well, I don't know so-and-so. Great. Hey, I don't know you, and I've seen you all the time. And you say, over there, and I'm over here. Yeah, I don't know you either. So when are we going to get together, your house or mine? Are we going to go to a restaurant even? Are we going to sit and have coffee? Whatever. We need to be doing this. Fellowship in common. Together. Together. This seems to be a very dominant theme. Now I've got to eat some crow. Because most commentators will say that this breaking of bread in the early church became this thing called the agape meal. And by the end of the agape meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of this breaking bread. And we clearly, and this is my fault, we don't do this often enough. And we need to do this more often to observe the Lord's Supper, to keep the cross before our eyes. Communion is a sermon to the eye. Now, unfortunately, by the time it gets to the Corinthians, they did it so often that it became old hat, and they took it for granted, and it lost its impact and power, and Paul had to kind of tell them basically the idea, if you need to do it less, then do it less. But every time you do it, you do it in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the early church, man, they were devoted to preaching and teaching. They're devoted to fellowshipping together, having each other. They knew each other's houses in and out. And they kept the Lord in the cross and the resurrection before them. And then there were these prayers. They were devoted to prayers. What are these prayers? Let's watch. 
The Jews already had stated times of prayer. 9 a.m. in the temple. Not that every Jew would go down to the temple, but in the temple they had 9 a.m. prayer, noon prayer, and 3 p.m. prayer. You're going to see in the next chapter, Lord willing, next Sunday, Peter and John are going up to the temple about the hour of prayer, and it's going to be in the 3 p.m. slot. So the early church, yes, they kept those prayers, but obviously what's implied is something in addition to that, something greater than that, and it's these prayers that were in the homes, these special prayers with God's people getting together corporately. Corporately. Write this thought before you do. Those of you who have been taught this before, what are the three kinds of prayer that we've been taught here at Graceview? The New Testament describes, so you don't have to say it out loud, closet prayer. This what? Corporate Daily fellowship. So we're going to write those. Does everybody know the difference? I'm not, I don't have time to go into all that. There's private closet prayer, just you and God. I believe that is the most foundational prayer. It's the most important of all. Then there is, as you go through the day, you're fellowshipping with the Lord. Listen, private prayer and daily fellowship with God, just you riding down the road by yourself. You're in the shower, fellowshipping with the Lord. Those are both commanded and modeled, both. But then we have this corporate prayer. Well, here's the thing about corporate prayer. Write this. Between private closet prayer and daily fellowship prayer and corporate prayer with other believers, here's what we notice. Corporate prayer is the most difficult. And maybe because it's the most difficult, it's the most neglected. Yet it too, corporate prayer is commanded Corporate prayer is modeled all through the New Testament. All three types of prayer, commanded and modeled all through the New Testament. It's going to be all through this book. Corporate prayer, as I said earlier, is in at least 12 chapters. Not 12 times. Some chapters have it multiple times. And it's at least 12 chapters in the book of Acts. Corporate prayer is a dominant feature. Difficult, yes. But the early church did not let something that is difficult stop them. They stayed devoted to it. They were devoted to it. So, Grace View, how are we doing? How are we doing? I'm going to make a statement, and I can't say it for everyone, but I think it's true. I believe that the more often we have corporate prayer, it's always difficult, but it becomes more natural and easier every time. The last two times we've had corporate prayer on Wednesday night, we've done it differently. We broke off in small groups and just kind of pray around. You're like, like the, only, the only holdback I found the way we do it, I really love it, is when we give like six things to pray for, that's probably too many because we really need to narrow it down about three because it takes a while for everybody in the little group to pray about it. And then, all right, let's go. Nobody has to pray that doesn't want to pray out loud. What I'm finding is there's already a spirit. It's like this is much less daunting every time. that we. The more we become familiar with it, the early church got so comfortable praying together. How are we doing? Are you devoted to Bible study, corporate Bible study? Are you devoted to fellowshipping with other believers? Are you devoted to eating together and living life together, even to the point that we worship together? Are you devoted to corporate prayer? Are you content with just, I got my private prayer? And I prayed to the Lord through the day. Okay, when do you pray with other Christians? This is what's being called for and what's being modeled. N.T. Wright writes the following. And I'm going to probably shorten this for time. 
I'll not go over all the things that he says on all four points. I especially want to get the first two. N.T. Wright writes how that all four of these things in verse 42 are very important. Quote, you cannot separate them or leave one out without damage to the whole thing. So he starts out, and this is the one I want you to write a note about. Where no, te- where no attention is given to teaching. Picture a church where no attention is given to teaching and to constant, lifelong Christian learning. Constant, lifelong. None of this, oh, I, I was a really good student in Sunday school when I grew up. Or, oh, I have a Bible degree from a university. Or, oh, I used to teach, at, I used to teach the Bible and I used to teach a class. But that's why I don't need to do any of the current Bible studies. And I don't, I don't need to come out for the extra times of spending learning the apostles' doctrine and the rest of the word of God. N.T. Wright is correct. He says, where no attention is given to teaching and to constant, lifelong Christian learning, people quickly revert to the worldview or the mindset of the surrounding culture and end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive. And even adds, with Jesus somewhere around as a pale influence or memory. I'm going to read it again as you're writing it. Think about it. Have you ever met someone like they used to be locked in with the Lord's people, but it's been a couple of years, year and a half, two? You see them, and you have like a five, eight-minute conversation, and you can just tell this person's mind is nothing on the Lord. They have nothing on the Lord. Obviously, there may be like, hey, yeah, hey, we're missing you. Well, yeah. Maybe they're eat up with guilt, but as you just talk about life and this and that and the other comes up, it's like, man, they're, they're just in the way of the world system. Hear that again, because he's correct, because we've seen this. When people drift away, that, that lone sheep, that finger that gets cut off and thinks it's going to be fine over there, away from the rest of the body, away from the teaching not constantly having the word. Paul told the Romans to renew your mind constantly. How? By learning and studying, spending time in the word of God, by the scriptures. Where no attention is given to the teaching, to constant lifelong Christian learning. People quickly revert to the worldview or mindset of the surrounding culture. And end up with their minds shaped by whichever social pressures are most persuasive. They may be able to quote Fox News, but they don't have God's word on their heart. The word of Christ is not dwelling richly in their spirit. The second thing I will touch, it's not a note, but Wright continues. He adds to that where people ignore the common life of the Christian family, they become isolated and often find it difficult to sustain a living faith. You ever seen that? I don't know what it is. I want to encourage you now, and you encourage me when my day comes. Okay, when I, I, you, my day's coming. I've had days, tougher days are coming. And tougher days are coming for you. Have you ever seen the Christian that when life hits and a deep trial comes, their solution is to stop going to church? I've seen it over and over. That is the total wrong response. Lock in all the more and just let God's people like, man, I'm I'm weak right now. Let them love on you. The last thing you want to do is separate yourself from the flock and from the body, from the family. Number two this morning. Would you notice in verses 44, 45, the genuine love of the early church? 
the genuine love of the early church. So as we read verse 44 and 45, and knowing that our message this morning is titled, The Model Church, okay, Jeff, is this what we're supposed to be doing? How come we haven't been doing this? Look at verse 44. So they were so locked in fellowship and corporate study of the word and corporate prayer together, all who believed were together and had all things in common. What does that mean? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 45 again. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what is this describing? Is this something we should be doing? Have we missed the mark? I want to begin by, now think for a moment. This is drastic. This isn't just page filler. Y'all understand? This is real stuff. I, I, need to, I need to sell this. What can I get for that? Come on. Come on. Give me more than that. Come on, man. It's worth more than that. No, back. back, back. All right. All right. Here, where does that need to go? Put that where it's needed. I got something. Hey, hey what are you giving me for? I remember you always ask about that. You've asked me a hundred times about this horse. You love that horse. I'll sell it to you. Here, I, I got some more. Why are they doing this? Obviously, there's great poverty. Now, I want us to think, what's causing this poverty? I want to offer three things. The third one, I'll have you write. Now, catch them. Number one, why is there so much? Number one is very simple because God loves poor people and God saves poor people. And so many of the people in the church who got saved were poor. In the early church, watch. They're eating with them and praying with them and studying with them and fellowshipping with them and worshiping God with them. It's like they don't have enough. We've got to help them. So there's that. There's a second dynamic that I'm assuming, but I think it's probably no doubt happened. As these Christians become identified more and more with Jesus, that's going against the official stance of Judaism and their national leaders And so there's going to become this tension that's going to turn into outright persecution by chapter 7 and 8. There's going to be this persecution. And so if you think of that as it's growing, this new Christian has had this family business that's been like three or four generations. And they have these contracts with other businesses around Jerusalem and Judea. But now those contracts are being cut off because you're with them. And no new contracts are coming in. But maybe... I'm getting some contracts with other Christians, but man, we're running low on money. This is not a wealthy group of people here. And so they're getting cut out and blackballed from business. And so their money streams are, are, are drying up. They weren't poor, but it's heading that way. Now, I want you to write this one down because I'm very confident this happened. There's a third reason of this poverty and that led to these extreme measures, and that's this. There were people from outside of Israel who came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they're away from their home. Now think about it. They're away from their home. They come for this feast. They brought some money to make some sacrifices and to live on, no doubt a little bit extra. But while they're at Pentecost, they get saved. They get saved, and instead of going back home where their house is and their business is and their family connections, they end up staying because this is where the church is, and they begin a new life. Would you write that down? So people who are away from their homes are in Jerusalem for Pentecost. They get saved and they stay. And now all of a sudden there's poverty. Like these people don't even have anywhere to live. And 
Man, they've run out of the money that they brought. And no doubt all three of those dynamics are true. I say that for this reason. What's modeled in verse 44 and 45 is not commanded for all churches. Because most all churches will have poverty and poor people within their congregation. They won't always be in societies where you're blackballed and cut off in business if you're a Christian. We don't have that here in America. Somebody may choose to not use your business because you're a Christian. But most people would be like, oh, that's a Christian. Hopefully they're honest. I want to use them. So it almost helps us. By the way, some have come and tried to network within churches because they find churches as a good place to to build their business sometimes. But we surely don't have that third dynamic. And so for that reason, what I'm saying is this was an example. And this was a great model of love. But this was not a commandment, what took place. And I'm not just saying that because I want to keep my money, right? I promise you that's not the reason. So before we look at what's actually happening in verse 44 and 45, can we just quickly hit what is not happening? So let's get this in our mind. What is not happening? Some of these are on the screen. Some are not. First one is not. Now, listen. Everybody did not go out and sell everything that they owned. That didn't happen. They only sold their possessions as needed. As there was a need, they sold their possession. It wasn't automatically, hey, go sell the possessions. Is everybody tracking with me? So when you got saved, and you say, I want to become a member of Graceview, we did not say, all right, who's your employer? So-and-so. And how often do you get paid? All right. So, and what is that checking account number? And we need that routed right in here. And what? Oh, now here's your debit card. Here's you a church debit card. And you get a card. And you get a card. And you get a card. Everybody gets a debit card. And bless her heart, Renee has a big stack. And she's got all these rent payments and grocery bills and power bills and telephone bills to pay. But everything, we're putting it all into one big pot. Go sell all your assets, all your investments, liquidate everything. We're putting it all into one big fund. And at the end of the month, boy, those Taylors and Smiths and Joneses, man, they went crazy on the groceries this month. Like, nope, we don't do that. Why not? Okay, so everybody, number one, they did not go out and sell all their possessions. Number two, this is important, this was not about everybody having the same amount. That was not the goal. We've got to make everybody have the same amount. The early church was so loving, no one was allowed to have more than it. Nope, that's not the case. Number, the first one, you're actually right. They did not sell their primary possessions. They didn't go out and sell their primary house that they lived in. If they did that, now they're poor. Right? They didn't sell their primary possessions. They were selling secondary, extra things that were over and above. Next thought, very important. What's happening in Acts 2 is not an attack on wealth. It's not a redistribution of wealth among the church. That was never the intention of the New Testament. It's just not modeled nor command- commanded. This is not an attack on wealth. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always. He said, you're always going to have the poor. Now think about it. I'm going to make three categories. Here, category number one, here's the poor on the financial scale. And then we have this next group above them. They're not poor. They have enough. They have enough. Their needs are met. But then above that, and there's all kinds of levels of this, there's those that have measures of wealth. These don't have enough. These have enough. These here have a little more than enough. And these have... A good bit more than enough. 
And these have like a lot more than they need. And those have like an abundantly much more than they need. Way more. If this was an attack on wealth, then we would be left to want, okay. We're always going to have the poor. If some aren't wealthy, these have enough, but they don't have extra. If some aren't wealthy, who's going to help the poor? God gives people gifts and resources. Praise the Lord. Did you know that giving is a spiritual gift and some have it? And it's a great gift. Now, those that are in this category, whatever level, the key for them is to hold those possessions, that wealth and those skills and ability to make more, but to hold it lightly as needs become apparent and clear. To not squeeze it like this is all for me. No, to realize God blessed me to be a blessing. And lastly, write this down. And this is what some people actually have tried to twist the New Testament into uh, supporting communism. This is a commune. No, it's not. This is everybody, like what I just described. Go out and work, put it all in one big fund, and everybody gets kind of equal payments. This is not communism. This was not an earlier case of communism. Why? Because their giving was purely voluntary. Purely voluntary. It was not mandated by the government. And the other clear indicator this is not communism is that these people had private property. That's why when I read verse 46 earlier, I wanted you to note the word, where were they meeting? They were meeting daily in the temple and in their houses. Not the group's houses, their individual houses. People still had private property. In about three chapters, we're going to kick off chapter 5, Lord willing. And we're going to find this man named Ananias and Sapphira. And I'm not going into all right now. But remember, because I might not remember this. Peter is going to defend private property in verses 3 and 4. He's going to say, Ananias, when before you sold your house, was it not yours? Was it not yours to have? And even after you sold the house and the proceeds, were they not yours? And of course, they were. So Peter's making a clear case. Private property is normal. It's fine. And so anybody who tries to use and say, the best form of government, and it's taught in the New Testament. No, it's not. It's not communism. This is not a message against communism. But I'm not a fan of communism. <laughs> I'm against communism. Because it... So that actually slides into the next thought. I hope you will hear what I say. I hope you'll hear all that I say. I hope I say it how I believe it. That's first. Lord, help me to say it how I believe it. And I hope you'll hear what I say and not hear what I don't say. I encounter this sometimes in the church. I was shocked in a recent meeting. Very shocked. Of, let's just say, Christian leaders talking about how the church can make impact. It was about 40 pastors, very recently. <clears throat> how to make impact. And the answers were being recorded. I was shocked how many answers had to do with this idea. So, Jeff, what do you mean? And I'm not one to speak up. 
I'm really not one to speak up in a room full of 40-some pastors. And yet I found myself speaking up four times. And I won't go into it all. I find that within churches and a lot outside churches, a lot of people outside the church and some within the church have a mindset that the church's number one main purpose, the main thing it should be about is feeding and clothing the world's poor. Now, hear everything I'm going to say. Hear it all the way to the end. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Some people think that's the number one thing the church should be about. I used to be at a church that was on a big road and had, had several on the staff, and it was my lot when someone came in because they were on a big road. We often have people come in needing this paid and that paid, and could you give me money, and I got this and that and the other, and unfortunately, they didn't have the money to do it, and I had to be the one to kind of tell them, and sometimes they'd be like, well, then what are y'all even here for? I mean, they'd get really mad, and I'd ask them, well, like, you know, I'd, I'd ask the obvious question. Do you have a church home? Well, I haven't found a good church yet. How long have you been in Anderson? Just 17 years. And I try to lovingly, I want to say, do you know if you had a church home, you wouldn't be here asking a stranger for help? They would be helping you. But some, even in the church, think this is the number one main thing we do. What did you notice about the sacrifice and the generosity in verses 44 and 45? Who is it for? Let's write that down. The sacrifice and generosity in verse 44 and 45 was specifically for believers, fellow believers. The idea that the church exists and our number one main goal should be to feed and clothe the poor of the world, I'm telling you, this may be brand new to somebody, it is not commanded in the New Testament, it is not modeled anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere does the New Testament model or command that the church is to spend the majority of its time and its resources and energies collecting resources to go try to feed the poor of the world. And I mean the poor in general. You say, Jeff, are you against humanitarian work? Do you think the church should not be about the business of humanitarian work? I hear everything. The church should absolutely be about humanitarian work. But we're going to do it differently than Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Ted Turner. Number one, we're not going to call a press conference like Ted Turner did when he gave hundreds of millions. Thanks. Could have done without the press conference to let everybody know how generous you are. So, Jeff, should the church do humanitarian work? Listen, yes, But we do it differently because we should always be striving to connect it to evangelism. Always striving. Now, don't hear what I didn't say. I'm not saying that our humanitarian work, food, clothing, shoes, coat, soup, hamburger, pancakes, whatever, power bill being paid, it is not contingent on or conditional. Now, you are going to let me... Give you the gospel, right? We're not doing that. But we're constantly thinking, how can I insert the gospel here? This is what we have to constantly be thinking. And so as we are led by God to help meet people's, I'm going to make two categories, temporal, physical needs, as we're thinking and and longing in the Lord, we feel the Lord led us in this area, we're going to meet physical, temporal needs 
We need to be thinking how, along with that, can we help meet their, their greater spiritual, eternal needs. Y'all remember in math when you were a little kid? You remember the greater than, less than sign? And you put the little teeth on the alligator. Y'all remember that, right? I, I'm not the only one that did the teeth on the alligator. Alligator wants to eat more. He doesn't want to eat less. So over here we have temporal, physical. That's legitimate. But over here we have eternal, spiritual. This is greater than that. If all we do is feed and clothe poor people without ever trying to connect them to the gospel, all we're doing is making lost people a little more comfortable right before they go to hell. That's all we're doing. What's happening here is saved people, here's what's happening, saved people who study together, praise God together, verse 47, pray together, fellowship together, in each other's homes, serving each other, man, they fell in love with each other. I love that guy. What? What's going on with him? He needs something. I'm giving to that. I, I love that guy. Oh, I love that. that. That lady, she is so, are you kidding me? Hey, hey, so-and-so, got a need. Who's in? Me, me, bing, bing. All right. We ain't putting up with that. We love them. But there's a whole other dynamic. When strangers who do not participate with us in these activities come seeking material help, we may feel pity, and God very well may lead us to give. He may lead us to give, but that leading will not be rooted in familial love like it is for these others. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, I should have had it on the screen. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That might draw somebody in. Thought you had a power bill wasn't paid. Well, it is now. How's that? My church. Your church? Will they pay mine if I go down? They pay mine because I've been faithful. You might all think about getting connected with a good church. Are you a Christian? How would you describe your relationship with God? What do you think it takes to have a relationship with God and live with Him forever in heaven? Yeah, those people love me. We don't become parasites, but we become partners. Write this thought. They felt responsible for one another. That's what's happening. Why'd they feel responsible? Because they are responsible for one another. They gave without grudging. They gave without boasting. Why? Because they truly looked at each other as family. That's my family. Love them. It's kind of like Barclay writes. Barclay says a real Christian could not bear to have too much when others have too little. It's not just the world in general. Oh, Wealthy people should feel guilty. No, it's Christian brothers like, it's not equality. It's like, man, they have a real need, and I've got this extra. Are you kidding? I'm going to help meet that need. And the Lord will cause that as he puts the love of Christ within us. Again, no boasting, no arrogance, no envy. We were over at Tim and Wendy's Friday night. Deanna and I were, and I shared with them how years ago, my brother... My physical brother, family. He bought a 36-foot, fifth-wheel camper. And a brand-new truck with the same color pattern. Because if you're going to have the camper, you've got to have the matching. Anyway, that was his thought back then. Bet that made you jealous, didn't it? 
Not at all. I literally not one moment had any envy whatsoever. Why? Because he had to make the payments. <laughs> and he told me, Jeff, if you ever need it, just let me know. You know give me time to, because I'm going to use the truck as a work truck. Just let me know in time to gas up the truck and wash the truck if you ever need it. Why would I be envious knowing if I ever needed it, it was there? Did I ever take him up on it? No. I'm not driving around. I'm not driving a 36-foot with three slide outs. Are you kidding me? We went with them some. We went with them some. But uh, <clears throat> that's my brother. He had the right eyes. He was going to look out for us. He was generous. First John 3, and then quickly we've got to go to our last thought today. Look at First John 3. Flip over there very quickly. First John 3. <clears throat> so this is not a command for us to go sell everything that we own, but the spirit of this is commanded. First John 3, look at verse. Before I read verse 16, you'll see that on screen. The reason I want you to go there especially and actually open your own Bible, look back at verse 14. We know, so everybody listen this morning. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Watch. So here's God. Way over here, separated from God, is where we were. We were living in death. Death is separation. But one of the ways we know we've passed, we've moved out of death to life is because we love all the other people who have this same life. So we used to be over there, and now we're here with God, life, and we love those other people who have this same life. If we don't love them, then we're still over there. You can say you're saved. Oh, no, no, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. But you don't love the brothers and sisters. No, you're not. Now look at verse 16. Well, how do we know if we love or not? If, if love is a condition, an, ex, an expression, a proof, an evidence of our salvation, then what is love? Well, here's the, here it is. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay? Can't go into verse 16. But if anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we're not commanded to automatically go sell everything we have, put it in a communal banking account. But what we are commanded is when two things happen. When you see a Christian brother or sister has a need, not saying they're like, well, they want a new boat. I'm not. When they have a need and you have this world's goods, you have the material possessions, over and above what you need, when those two things happen, you help meet the need. And that's when you'll know you love. If you just refuse to do that, you're saying you're loving, but the Lord says, the Lord through John says, let's, let's love in, in deed and in action, in truth. And then back to Acts chapter 2, number 3 this morning. We've seen the devotion of the early church. We see the genuine love of the early church. We see the witness of the early church. Notice the witness of the early church, verse 46, 47. Note these words. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, glad hearts, generous hearts, praising God. Where are we ultimately heading? Where's this, is this thought? The Lord added to their number day by day. So we find the early church is a very witnessing church. 
So I'm going to beg you, hang with me. Just next, we're not going to be here long. This will be the shortest of, of the points. But really try to say, Lord, speak to me and show me your will in this area. Write it down. The early church was growing. It was increasing because it was attractive. It was attracting. Why was it attractive? Because of its love and its zeal and its joy. This was very attractive to people. Man, these people, are you seeing what they're doing? They're loving it. God had to tell the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, don't charge each other interest. Hey, Jews, don't charge fellow Jews interest. And now this group's going way above and beyond that. They're just like giving. No, you don't even pay me back. No, it's just, it's a gift. Like in a world of hatred and selfishness and greed, are you seeing, man, I want to be part of that. And then they have this zeal. Man, these people live on purpose. They have devotion. They're committed. And then they have this joy. What's going on the inside is coming out in praise, and that's just attracting people. So I think there's two dynamics that are attracting and why the early church was being added to day by day. One is no doubt, and the other is no doubt. They're both true. Do you remember how, how did God collect the 3,000 the 3, for Peter to preach? What did God use? What was it? The gift of tongues. Is anything happening in Jerusalem for God to start drawing crowds of unsaved for the apostles to preach to some more? Is anything happening? Yes or no? What verse? Signs and wonders are being done. Many signs and wonders. So there's no doubt lots of miracles are taking place. Everybody's awestruck. Man, the power of God is on these guys just like it was on their master. I mean, they're actually feeling it. Man, it's, it's fearful and solemn and heavy and weighty. And people are being drawn and the apostles are teaching and preaching and people are getting saved. But along with that, the Lord was using average Christians. And I hate that word. In my, on my paper, I promise, I have average in, quote, because there's no average Christian. When I'm using that word, I mean it by non-vocational. These are people who are not getting paid to be in the ministry, but they're doing ministry. Yes, the apostles were preaching and winning many people to the Lord, but along with that, the Lord was using average Christians as gospel witnesses. Why? Hear me, please. Personal evangelism is something that is for all believers. Help me. Help me. Second greatest command in all of the Word of God. Second greatest one is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can we truly love our neighbor if we're sitting on the most important piece of information? How to go to heaven, how to have eternal life, how to escape hell. Can I love my neighbor if I'm sitting on that and I never share it? No, you can't. That is implicit. It's not direct. That is an implicit command. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you're a Christian, you have to be about personal evangelism. You, not calling me. You about the business. This is why, stronger than Brandon said it, not like if you need some help with evangelism, come out and let's train for evangelism this Wednesday night. Let's encourage each other. Let's learn a few things. Let's work together. I ought to see you say, well, I haven't been to the first three. We got two more. It is not too late to jump in. Jump in Wednesday night. Matthew 28, 18. Not, don't turn there. We are commanded to make disciples. 
Watch. The apostles were commanded. Christ commanded the apostles to go make disciples in all nations. And when those disciples are made, teach them to observe to do all the things I've commanded you, which includes that last command, so that these, your disciples, that you're going to make, are supposed to go make more disciples, who are taught to go make more disciples. And the cycle literally keeps going and going and going. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 to 21 says, talks about when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We then are given the ministry of reconciliation. God makes his appeal to other people through you, all of us. That is not written just to a specific, like one or two people. That's for all people, 2 Corinthians 5. Ephesians 4 is clear. God gave the church the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. Not so they'll do the work of the ministry, but so they would equip the saints to do the work of ministry. All of us, Jude, verses 20 to 23, is about we save, pull people from the fire, saving them from the fire. Go to the the beginning of Jude, and you'll see that that book is written to all believers. I'm almost done. The Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. Jeff, been here a long time. You know what I don't hear you talk about that I hear a lot of other preachers? Even like New Year's, you don't get up every New Year and give us a big speech on your vision for the church. Well, then listen up, because I'm about to tell it to you. My vision for this church, my dream, is less about buildings and programs Though when the Lord's work happens the way that I envision it and I dream about it, we'll probably be needing some updated buildings. There'll be more programs. Those are good things. Those are tools. Jeff, what is your vision and dream? I'll just read it. My vision and dream is that Graceview grows more and more into a church filled With people who love God, love Jesus, are passionate about God's word because we deeply long to grow in knowledge of him and experience of him. But not just filled with people who love God and love Jesus and love the Bible, but who love and like each other and show it because they often just fellowship together and they love worshiping together and they love praying together but also filled with people who are all equipped trained and who are obedient to carry out Jesus final command to go make disciples in all the world so much so that they're having conversations all through the week to make converts. My dream for Graceview is a church filled with regular Christians who are equipped and seeking to have clear and compelling gospel presentations throughout the week so that God blesses those and people are getting saved out there and then come in here to join us for the discipleship process. What I'm just, do you know what God could do? In one or two years, if we really got a hold of that, 
If everybody was equipped and trained, not just, oh, I know how I got saved. I could share my testimony. That's awesome. That's part of it. But I mean a clear, compelling, to where you're confident you know how to present the gospel and you start gospel conversations and you don't get stuck on the one that rejected you as if that defined. Well, I tried it one time with somebody and it didn't work. Move on and find the ones that the Lord is adding daily to the church. Move on to the next one. Oh, they rejected me. They had something I wasn't ready. Okay, great. Move to the next one. Literally look around. Do you know what would happen if in the next one or two years, every genuine Christian in this room won one person to Christ and brought them into the faith family? One. What would happen? We'd be talking about buildings and programs. You ought to beg God. There's some of you, you have been very content to this point. It is so not on your radar. You ought to beg God. Lord, I want to, win. I want to lead somebody to the Lord. I want to lead somebody to Christ. Lord, I want to be a Nathan in April. I want to be that, that lead Kyle and Ashley. And then Ashley leads Nikki. I want to be a Victor David that wins a student during his planning period. And I hope you don't get in trouble. If that gets you in trouble, we'll cut that out. <laughs> Beg God, Lord, please. I want, could you imagine if everybody here, nobody like, I'm content. I don't need to do it. I don't think when, if, if the Lord answered that prayer, I don't think you'd be like, okay, I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. I reproduced. That's all I needed. Just that one. I believe you'd be like, Lord, I want to lead another one. And another one. This property wouldn't contain what God would want to do. I'm not going to have you stand. I, I, I told Mike I might have you, have you stand. I'm not going to have you stand. Teenagers. Teenagers, are you here? Don't raise your hand. I'm just talking to you for a second. Are you a true Christian? Answer yes or no in your own heart. Are you a true Christian? Do you have a relationship with God? Number three, is there anything, teenager, is there anything in you? I remember being a teenager. Is there anything in you that wants to be extraordinary? Most of us want to be extraordinary when we were teenagers. I mean, teenagers, I'm asking you that for this reason. If Pastor Mike were to spend a few weeks in the coming months, wherever God leads him to do it, between now and September... If God were to lead Pastor Mike to teach you how to not just share, to know how to share your faith, but to share the gospel clearly and compellingly at an early age, not wait until you get way older. I mean at a time early in your life when you can start right now reaching your peers. If Pastor Mike were to teach that, would you come? Would you come? Because I'm going to tell you straight up, it's risky as a church. You try to do something like that in youth group, and you'll thin them out real quick. They're going to go somewhere else where they'll have more fun. It's scary. We don't want to do that. Jeff, you'll, you'll kill it. I'm challenging you. When he does that, you ought to say, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be faithful. And you parents ought to just be egging it on. Yep, get in there. I'm learning it myself. Get in there. And let's, let's be extraordinary. Let's be used by the Lord. And the Lord added to the, who added? The Lord 
You know what this sounds like? It sounds a lot like verse 23, and it sounds a lot like verse 39. There is this foreordained plan of God. And as many as the Lord our God calls, those are the ones who will have the gift of repentance, and they will believe. And the Lord adds to the church. So, last note. Evangelism is not our getting people saved. So if you think, oh, no, I don't know if I can do evangelism. I don't know if I can get anybody saved. Let me just settle your hearts. You can't. You cannot get anybody saved. Evangelism is not our getting people saved. It is our being faithful to share the gospel. That's it. Knowing that the results of evangelism are ultimately up to God. If you share the gospel with 100 people and zero of them get saved... Move on to the next one. The results are in God's hands. He is sovereign over all salvation. But he lets us be part of the process. Adults, I'll see you Wednesday. Young people, be ready when Mike is prepared to teach that. And let's become a church that has a culture of evangelism, a culture of devotion to Bible teaching, preaching, fellowship, eating together, living life together, praying together and loving on each other as we see the needs arise. Would you stand this morning? Father, thank you for our time in the Word. And Lord, I thank you that you let my voice hold up. Wasn't real sure that was going to happen today. Thank you for that. I pray that you would let us get your vision or let us glean from this early church. What a great example. Let us love like they did. Lord, let us be devoted. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will not let Us just walk out today unchanged. Let each one of us allow you to really evaluate our lives. And Lord, we want to be four for four Christians. Let us be devoted to the study of your word, devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread and worship, and devoted to corporate prayer, but devoted also to each other, to meeting needs. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to grow in that. And Lord, let us be devoted to the Great Commission, to be evangelistic, and just to trust you to beg you to use us. God, I pray, would you please let that become a fresh prayer, very specific prayer request of every one of our people to be able to lead someone else to Christ. Lord, lead us to prepare. Let us pray while we prepare. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you Wednesday night.